Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's uh, section of our podcast. Today, we have um, a very interesting topic to talk about mergers and acquisition in the accounting area. And Bob Lewis, he's a great resource in this area. Welcome, Bob. Bob, if you can introduce uh, yourself and what you do in this area, that'll be great. That'll be what definitely our audience is looking for, especially when they're trying to sell or acquire or merge. All right. I will uh, I will shamelessly plug myself by accident by explaining what I do. So we just work with accounting firms nationwide and have done so for about 28 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we do a lot of in these firms, we do a lot of merger and acquisition work. So we'll put firms together. We'll either uh, find firms that are looking to figure out what an upward path would be or they've decided they need to sell and merge them into our larger clients. Or for some of the some of our larger clients, what we're doing is we're looking for firms that are not on the market yet. Start a conversation, trying to figure out why they would want to merge. A lot of firms are merging right now for upward growth, not just for an exit path. There's succession issues in this industry. Um, other things we do with firms, just to give an idea how this flavor would work today, we help them figure out how to open up their advisory arm, how to reprice, how to go through their entire client list and go. Is this a client we want moving forward? Getting into some of the things, Ganesh, that well, you you do you do a little bit of little bit of outsourcing, right? A little, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, like three people, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, so he did it, so we help them figure out how to offshore or outsource, and it's not just even offshoring. It the outsourcing could be internal, it could be domestic. There's nearshoring, offshoring, all kinds of different options: accounting, tax, audit, consulting work because they need to figure out a way to expand their capacity. That's that's a big part of what we do. So with that said, Ganesh, I'm going to flip that back over to you. Oh, that's great. Now that you you, you touched upon the succession plan, right? How does, how does an accounting firm owner know whether they have a valid succession plan or whether it's whatever they have is the right one or not? How do they even gauge it? Um, okay, so the first thing is, if they don't have anything in writing, we already know there's a problem. Okay, let's start with that, okay? So... Second thing is we have a lot of people that, that think they have a plan. Like I've talked to Ganesh, I'm going to make you one of our one of my succession team. And you've got two other people there. I really love the way you guys work and operate. And I think it would be great that you'd be able to take over the visionary group. Um, but what's happened is I've really never talked to you about what that plan is. And you don't know how much money there could be if you became an owner of the visionary group and, you know, how this would work and how the transition is. So although I think I have the right people, I haven't talked to them. I don't have a plan in place and the financial components haven't been worked out. So that's the first thing you look at. A lot of firms believe they have the talent, but they don't know how to actually create the structure. The other thing that that's a little bit of a problem so let's assume, Ganesh, you and the other two people we, we have lined up here to take over Visionary, which, by the way, would probably not be a good strategic move for you. You should probably stay with what you're doing. But um, let's assume you and the other two people who want to take over Visionary are really good, really sharp, great with the clients, understand the financial part of the process. But the three of you have never brought in a piece of work in your entire career. So... Although right now the the economy has been very fortunate to accounting firms where there's a pretty big staffing shortage. So work is kind of just coming in in droves. We get more work than we can actually handle. I do need people that can eventually sell. So if my my buyout is going to be dependent on the three of you who are coming in and and you don't know how to bring in work, that that has a bearing in my decision on how to do an internal succession or not because I may have to merge it upward so that I can get a more secure buyout because... 
I need people that can also bring work. That's a huge hidden secret in a lot of succession. How And how do they even test it? So let's say you have all the pieces in there, right? How do they even test that it's a valid succession plan or whether it will work or not and then not regret later on? Well, okay. So here's another component in here. You have to also understand there's a partnership agreement that exists in most firms, which states some kind of value what the firm is. But really what the firm is worth is what you and your other two partners in this particular situation would be willing to pay me for my practice. Um, one of the things is understanding what the value of your firm is. So if I'm the owner of the firm right now, I have to realistically understand what I think this firm is worth. Let's assume I've composed a firm with a lot of lower end 1040s and, and maybe write-up work, which is kind of a dirty word, but it should be client accounting services, but let's just use write-up work, but it's very low end. That younger succession team may be looking at that going, I don't think it's worth one times revenue or 100% of revenue, however you're valuing it, and they may want to discount it. Now, the question becomes, do I think it's discountable? Do I agree with their pricing? Or do I think it's worth more? And that, to me, is your first your first sticking point. If we have identified that I actually have a team, the first point is, what do we agree on the value? Is And that's where we're seeing problems, too, where an owner like myself has got a good practice, has made money off it off the years, but maybe they built a practice that isn't as attractive now to sure. transition because it's, the 1040 work is really not something most firms want to buy anymore. Um, yeah. So, so as a part of the succession plan, is selling or merging, how would someone judge uh, what way to go and what do they need to make? Uh, what changes do they make, uh, need to make to make that happen? Well, okay. So let's assume that you mean the changes for the potential succession team. That they yes. Have to, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. First, they'd have to get a realistic grasp on what the financial is so that you're going to be buying me off. So you're going to be paying me off. Do they understand what that payment schedule looks like? What my compensation is going to look like going forward until I'm finally gone? Um, how how much how much transitioning of authority do they have? So like at one point, let's go with the example of you and your other two partners are taking me out, right? At what point do, do I transition my authority making over to the, the team? That's a big part of this because I may be there forever if I don't transition my relationships and my ability for you to make decisions. So those are things that are part of a working document that you agree to. Getting back to that emotional part though now, now Ganesh, let's just say that you're going to be taking over as managing partner of the of the group and I'm going to be the one exiting, right? I'm going to exit for two or three years. What if I stop? What if I never actually do transition my clients to you? And what if I don't allow you to make those decisions on your own because we haven't actually transferred my ownership over to you and your team yet? That to me needs to be really clear because at some point, you and the team who purchased are buying into this. You need to take control of this and I need to begin to step out. And the hard part is getting back to the emotional part is I don't want to transition out often. And quite frankly, you and your team are probably going to make some mistakes when you come in. And I'm going to have to understand that you're going to make some mistakes, just like I made them when I was earlier in my career, and probably still make them every day. Brutally, uh, really honest, so you still make mistakes every day. Who doesn't? But that, to me, is one of your biggest parts: is getting that communication process right and, and really sticking to a defined timeline. There should be no handshake agreements in these. It needs to be very clearly defined in the paper, so that if you don't agree with what's on paper or I don't, then we talk that through until we get it right. Because if we if we end up having to talk about it later, because we're not sure, that's typically when everything starts to blow up, and we don't want to see that happen in, in either side of the party. So, 
And how, how does a merger differ from a sale? Ah, okay. All right. You can read more. Go into the meat of it right now. Yeah. So <laughs> let's take an example. I'm going to take a $10 million firm and a $2 million firm. So I'll be the $2 million firm. You can be the $10 million firm in this example. So I'm going to take my, my $2 million firm and I'm planning to be there for 10 more years still. Okay, so really, I'm not selling my practice. I'm probably merging my practice into yours. We're having a $12 million firm moving forward. I will have a percentage of ownership. For argument's sake, let's say I have one-sixth of ownership because let's assume the values are equal, which is not always the case. But I will have one-sixth ownership of the new firm going forward. Let's, let's change that. I'm um, of mine now to want to exit in two to three years. So now I'm going to probably sell you my $2 million practice. I'll come over as an income partner for a year or two, maybe. Then we'll start my transition. Or I'm going to sell you the practice today. You're going to start paying me off now. And my compensation model changes as I'm with you for the next two to three years. Big difference there between a sale and a merger. Often what we see is a hybrid. So what will happen is, let's make my firm a little bit bigger. I've got four partners now. This, myself and three partners. Two of us want to get out quicker. We're going to probably come in as more of a sale, whether we sell today or we start in three years. That's part of the conversation. But the other two partners, they're going to be there for 15 years. They merge the rest of their practice. And that's that's actually much more common in, in a lot of these transactions. It's really a hybrid rather than a straight out sale. But that's the core difference. And it, it, mergers typically don't have a transfer of money. And a sale typically has some transfer of money involved in it. So in your case of this $10 million firm acquiring or buying this $2 million firm. So what do what does this company, companies who are trying to merge or get a sale um, or purchase some company, what do they look for when they're wanting to merge or when they're looking to buy something? Okay, so let's assume you're looking to buy my firm, mm -hmm. okay? One of the things, that, one of the mistakes you say we make is they want to buy a firm just like them. So let's assume Ganesh, you have a phenomenal $10 million firm. It's operating at a very high level very high revenue per professional head, which is one of the benchmarks we look for. Um, my firm is not as good as your firm in terms of quality. Now, keep in mind, I may be making more money than you, percentage of profitability, but that's because I'm putting too many production hours in. So one of the things that you should be looking for at me is 1040s, lower end write-up work, my production hours and the rest of my staff's production hours. Because if I'm billing 2,500 hours a year, in your culture is you're billing a thousand hours a year. Well, no, no surprise. My my profitability should be higher because I'm doing a lot more work. It's not leveraged. So on the surface, you think I'm thinking my firm's worth more than yours. When the actual reality is your firm's worth more than mine because it's leveraged and sellable. Mine, how are you going to replace my 2,500 billable hours? And then the other 2,500 billable hours, my two other partners. That's a that's a tough call. So those are things to look for. The other thing I like to do is when we look for an opportunity, if it were you, the larger firm buying me, the smaller one, I want to look for an undervalued one. I want to look for one that, that isn't performing well, has maybe minimal client accounting services. Maybe they have a pricing issue uh, where they're not pricing enough. Those to me are immediate fixes you can put in place on my buy and improve the, the quality of my firm, which improves the profitability of your firm very quickly. Um, that's that's what we look for. We always look for what we call a, a an unpolished jewel. 
not not a horrible jewel, not nothing broken. If you're really broken, I don't want any part of it. But but if it's a pricing issue, a communication issue, uh, you have more services that can be cross-sold into my client base that I can't put together because I'm a smaller firm at this point. Those are really great opportunities for a firm like yours to come in and, and acquire me or merge me in and then go from there. How long does this process typically take? I mean, is it a couple of moment basis is it based on the market demands or is it based on whatever? How long does it, from your experiences, long experience in this industry, how long does this process take? Okay, so embarrassingly, my longest process has been four years. Oh. <laughs> okay. Now, what happens in a four-year deal is I'm, you and I start talking and you're the larger firm, I'm the smaller one. I'm not ready yet. Okay, I'm just, I'm just not there yet. So it may take a year or two more for me to get to the point where I want to begin that transition period. So we start having these conversations and we like to call it building a pipeline. The shortest transaction we've ever done has been just a shade over two and a half months. Okay, so by the time, by the initial phone call you and I had, two and a half months later, that firm was closed. That That's a pretty rapid process because everything has to be aligned properly. We have to be in agreement. Uh, cultures, culture, by the way, is a huge part of this process. No matter what happens, I may have the best opportunity to be acquired by you or merge into you, and our cultures are so far off, that's going to end up being a disaster for both of us and probably a bigger disaster for you, the larger firm, having to deal with me, who's probably going to fight you the entire time. Um, but typically, we see anywhere from 6 to 18 months be a good window from the initial point of conversation to closure because you got due diligence in there. We, we have yet to ever have a deal fall apart in due diligence. So once we've agreed that we put the two firms together, everything's good, and you start due diligence on my firm and I start on yours, we've never had a deal fall apart. Mostly because we ask the right questions. Like as an example, um, Ganesh, you, are you currently in any kind of a lawsuit? Have you, have you had a lawsuit? Are you under, you know, do you have a license suspended? The basic, basic kind of questions like that, like, oh, yes, I have a suspended license. And I'm bringing that up because that has happened, okay? That's where we learn to ask those questions. We get halfway through the process and we find out, well, that's interesting. Uh, he's got a, a peer review problem and um, he's under sanctions. Well, we should have probably known about that uh, before we started that conversation. Uh, and we have had the lawsuit. And we've had we've had some interesting things. So you have to ask those questions. If you don't ask those, those could pop out in due diligence. Because most of the time, the rest of the due diligence is I'm validating the numbers you provided and vice versa. Sure. And really, at that point, you'd have to be crazy to lie about the numbers and, and find out that an accounting firm won't find that out in due diligence. That's that's a that's a tough one. So <laughs> tough one to fool somebody on. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's great. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, because you, you don't think about some of these minor points, but that could come back and then blow back at you at much later point after me cannot do much about it at that time, right? No. <laughs> so how, how does the process work? Uh, Bob? What's the first step and what happens after that uh, in say, either mer merger or an acquisition process? Let's start the other way around. Let's say I'm going to sell my practice to you, mm -hmm. okay? So there's a couple of ways this thing starts. One is how do I find you? So one, we may have an existing relationship, which a lot of deals are done that way. We already know each other from events or whatever in the same neighborhoods. Um, two, when I don't have anybody that I can immediately think of to bring my firm to, which by the way is a mistake if you just think of one person to bring your firm to, like, oh, I'll bring it to this guy. How do you know if you're getting the right transaction or right deal? They do engage people like us to go out and represent them and find them 
the right party to bring it into. Flip it the other way now. So a firm like yours is going, well, I want to, I want to look to acquire a two, $3 million firm in Cleveland or whatever. I'm making up a city, okay? Uh, and the cities aren't quite as important anymore as they used to be, but it's still, it's still there. Um, you engage us to go find you a firm in an area, or you do it on your own, try and go find a firm in an area and have conversations with the managing partners about what we call a working relationship, which really is a merger acquisition. We don't want to get too detailed on the first call on that. But you're looking to, what we like to do is call it a Forrest Gump box of chocolates approach. I don't know what's going on in your firm, Ganesh, until I pick up the phone, I call you, I have a conversation, and then we see if it makes sense for a fit. Like if you had a $10 million firm and I'm trying to bring you up to a $50 million firm, I have no idea what's going on in your firm. There's no like directory on the, that says, oh, we know Ganesh is looking to sell his practice in two years. We have no idea. We start with the conversation. That's how you really begin most of these processes. A lot of them happen at managing partner roundtables or you go to a map conference or main conference. Um, that's how a lot of deals are done. Many of the deals are done because if they just are presented to somebody and they start the conversation and they go, Ganesh is a pretty good fit for me. I like him. He seems like a decent person. I know I probably misread that situation with you, Ganesh, completely, but, you know, let's let all the fun with you. Um, so, but that's, that's typically how these things kind of work. And from there, it's a question of, is there a good fit and is the timing right? And other factors on value and, and, and what the price is, those come in calls two or three or four. You want to get that, you first want to identify to make sure it's a good, it's a good symmetry between the two of us. Yeah. So with the, with the baby boomers, a lot of baby boomers retiring, uh, is there a lot of firms out there that are trying to sell and there's a supply, there's an oversupply or what, what are you seeing? Or there's a demand or there's a balance balance or what do you, what are you seeing now and maybe in the next couple of years? How, how, how do you see this uh, industry now? Get, getting a little bit of uh, statistics up here, the average baby boomer is 67, 68 years old now. Okay. They used to, if they still don't, own about 60% of the companies in the United States. So if you do that same, just identical application to an accounting industry and assume that they own the majority of the accounting firms, the transition is huge right now. The problem is in, this, in the United States, at least, there's 45,000 accounting firms ballpark. 42,000 of them are a million dollars or less. So I've got, you know, anywhere from one to 3,000. And it's really hard because no one really knows the exact number of firms from a million dollars on up looking to figure out how to get out. And we've got all that whole large group of firms below trying to also figure out how to get out. So yeah, it's a huge push right now out the door for a lot of these firms. But the, the tricky part is it everybody used to exit at 65. You know, life cycles were different. People would live till 75. So it was a little easier to kind of calculate, you know, exiting. Now people are living to 90, 95. And they're like, well, I'm not sure if I want to get out at 65 anymore. So one of the concerns the industry has right now is their number of people are sitting for the CPA exam itself, dropping significantly. Number of college grads coming out of accounting, dropping significantly. Number of people going into college, dropping significantly. So I've got a huge supply and demand imbalance, which has also created large profitability for firms. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there at 67 going, making more money than I ever made before. Do I want to exit? And I may want to push it two or three more years. The question becomes, at what point do I really want to get my entire life back? Yeah. 
and maybe maybe never because that is my life my life is just i love doing what i do we've heard that from a lot of people so the answer to that is yes but here's even the bigger more hidden problem on this one ganesh so if you look at inside of your firms your firms have the same exact problem their clients are aging up and that sounds like a bad thing like it's a risk factor and it is because you could lose some larger clients but the opportunity to me is helping those clients actually exit and sell their businesses is massive. And now we're moving, companies are moving, firms are moving more into opening up family offices now. There's just so much money in that wealth transition that's going to occur that um, I think this is just a, a really huge opportunity, but it is coming. We call it the gray wave. The gray wave is here. I've got the gray hair too, by the way, just, just to match the gray wave. I know it's a but yeah, I've got the gray hair to match the gray wave. So but it's here and it's coming and it's gonna it's gonna come with a tsunami force in the next five years. Because now I'm gonna be 73 at the average baby boomer. And if I've been pushing it, now I'm gonna get real serious. Um, because I'll, I'll have to find a way out. The question is, will the economy continue to support that? Private equity, another factor in this marketplace right now. It's you know, we have to, we'll have to see how strong that plays out, but it's a very interesting world right now. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the myths and misinformation that exists in this world of mergers and acquisition for accounting firms? Uh, we both I'm sure that you would have seen a lot of them in your, in your expensive career. We, we both have $10 million firms now, Ganesh. I've caught up to you, okay, in this example. Mm -hmm. They're both worth the same. Your ten, if you sold your $10 million firm for whatever, 11, 12, 8, whatever, take your pick, whatever it would sell for. Um, my firm is going to sell for that same amount. That's completely not true. There's so many variables on how I, how we both got to 10 million. And even if we're both dropping 30% profitability to the bottom line, it sounds like we should both have the same firm, right? Your niche could be different. Your bench could be different. How you're getting to your 30% may be very different than how I'm getting at my 30%. Those are all variables that impact pricing, and a lot of people have not thought that through. The other part, which which is really kind of a myth right now in the in the MA world, is um I, I think I can sell the firm for a higher price and still demand partner comp. So we have had a lot of deals fall apart because I refuse to take a lower compensation while I'm being bought out because I feel like I should be getting paid because I'm working the entire time. You're paying to buy a part of your transition. You have to agree to a lower comp. It's very rare for any situation for I can get full partner comp and get my buyout because the cash flow just doesn't work. And when you actually talk to a seller about that, the answer often is, well, look how much money they're going to make in three or four years. And well, three or four years, I've already lost several million dollars. I, I that It doesn't work. That's one of the biggest myths um, in this industry. The other part... Um, Really, the big myth is what is the value overall and how do you calculate it? So I know there's a term out there called EBITDA. Have you ever heard of EBITDA? <laughs> okay. Right. As opposed to gross revenue. Yeah. So if we look at EBITDA, what's the adjusted EBITDA and how does that multiple get derived? And that really is really when we get down to the core value of how a firm's value is. Most firms struggle to really determine what the proper EBITDA should be or the revised EBITDA would be. And that's one of the things we do help firms figure out. Um, I, I guess from another myth in this industry right now is where's everybody going? Because like compliance work is going to go away. Uh, compliance work is not going to go away. <laughs> you better you better hope it doesn't go away because I think you're going to have a lot of support systems in place for compliance. 
<laughs> you mentioned you use, I'm going to flip it on you now. You mentioned you use artificial intelligence as part of your solution. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we do have an artificial intelligence for bookkeeping, automating bookkeeping processes. Yes. Okay. So artificial intelligence is not going to eliminate the accountant or the bookkeeper. It's just going to make the accountant or bookkeeper maybe 50% more effective. Yes. So how we look at this is basic revenue per professional head. Going back to my $10 million firm, if I have 50 full-time equivalent accounting professionals, my revenue per professional head is $200,000. That same firm going forward will be able to do $300,000 revenue per professional head using capacity expansion, which one of the tools is artificial intelligence and pricing differently. Um, and I think that's one of the things where people are confused, especially the younger generation. They think audit work's going to go away, accounting work's going to go away, tax work's going to be automated. So if we're not doing 100% consulting, then I'll have no future in 10 years. It's just going to be different. Yes. Honestly, if I were a younger professional right now going into the accounting area, I would be insane not to go into this area because I think the, the, the amount of money that they can make and with the pending opportunities from artificial intelligence and these other changes in the market, you can make a lot more money in these firms. A lot of these firms are sleepy. Mm -hmm. um, they aren't changing what's not broken and they're leaving a lot of money on the table. And I, I think the younger generation, when they step into it, will we'll see this as a, a pretty good opportunity, but that's my, my perspective, oh, yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. which is never wrong. Of course, can you, yeah. my perspective, it's always right. Is there any other thing that you want to discuss or talk about in the mergers and acquisition area, anything else that the audience would feel um, uh, that they need some more information from you on anything else? I mean, just whatever you can think well, of. On the m &A side, I think we're, I think we covered a good chunk of it. Look, the m activity is going to continue to pick up. It's a question of just finding the right partner mm -hmm. that you're going to do this work with. That's the hardest part. But if I had to leave one piece of advice for this audience on the accounting industry in general, you're probably underpricing. Um, you're underpricing because you may not have the right selling skills in place on how to handle that. And you're probably also carrying a lot of clients that you built the firm on that may no longer fit the value of it. The whole goal of all of this, how do I build the enterprise value of my firm, my accounting firm, so that I can merge it upward, sell it, or do an internal succession. If I'm doing that right, I'm probably making the most money as I can while I'm doing it and having the right culture in place that attracts the right people. And it sounds easy. It isn't to get there, but that is the direction you should be looking at going. And if you're dealing with clients that, that no longer fit what you're doing, it's a tough conversation. But the easiest way to fix it is price them out. If that doesn't work, then, then you have more aggressive tactics you need to take. There's more clients out there in the market than you could ever grab right now. It's just a question of how you get to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great, uh, Bob. Thank you very much. It was a very useful uh, session. I'm sure that our audience would love to hear more from you.